Greetings, this is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz. I'm Sam Steinke. I'm Molly Krassel. And I'm Daniel Morbuck. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about some graphic novels of Dan's choice and Comic-Con. All right, first, thanks so much for joining us, Daniel. Yeah. Uh, Daniel used to be uh, one of the editors on Straylight and is coming back because uh, he knows a lot about graphic novels and we want to talk about graphic novels on the show. We'd like to talk to people who write graphic novels, but we haven't been able to do that yet. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. Uh, It's always fun to be able to have a conversation about comics and graphic novels that don't get a lot of conversation in the public sphere and all that. Daniel's part of my nerdy book club and has yeah. occasionally suggested graphic novels, and I've pretty much said no. Why would you do that? <laughs> Why? <laughs> because they're old, very old people in the oh. in the group. Like Walt Graffin is you know, 80. <laughs> there's a certain amount of, like, it's not so much foreknowledge that you need, but if you're not used to learning and reading and absorbing in a, in a visual medium, like all the panels and the line work and the art, and it, it can be really jarring for mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I can remember having lunch with, uh, years ago, having lunch with Walt, uh, who's the former chair of the English department and the chair of the art department. And, you know, at this time, there were it was the beginning of the courses that were making appearances on the graphic novel, uh, at, univer- at the university level, and Walt was kind of saying, "I don't understand why would be, we would be discussing things like this in a college, you know, classroom." <laughs> and uh, the head of the art department, Alan, said, "Well, you've read uh, you've read William Blake, and he has illustrated manuscripts. It's the same thing." <laughs> <laughs> and the and the chair of the English department was silent after that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Walt's a good guy and everything, but I can't help but be like, man, you are a part of the problem. Like, this, no, this is this stuff is great. Comics yeah. are so cool, man. You just don't get it. <laughs> oh, and I mean, like, even if you're older, I mean, hello, Superman. Like, there's no way that you didn't know about that and have experienced stuff like this sometime in your life before. It's funny because uh, I, there's... On the same note, there was uh, I watched some. I sometimes I watch Bill Maher, and he had. I'm sure you've seen that this Daniel. He had that huge rant <clears throat> after Stanley's death. I know he did it, but I deliberately avoided it. Yeah, like I I don't need to be made agitated. Yeah, today, so this doesn't exist to me. Bye. Yeah, so the the argument there is sort of like, yeah, of course I read comics when I was 12, you know, and Ooh. so yeah. yeah. So wait, I don't yeah. understand what's the context of what you're saying. Like Stanley died, and so this guy's like not a fa- so he's just going up there and talking that he's not a fan of comics. Like he's, I don't yeah, understand. Yeah, he said he says culturally, um, part of the problem in the United States today is comic books that people are looking at them as literature, and comic books are supposed to be something for him um, that were part of his adolescence and a fond part of his adolescence, but a part of his adolescence no- nonetheless. And, uh, adults 
um, don't believe in Superman and read about Superman and Batman and things Woof. like that. And so he chose Stanley dying as his yeah. platform to do that. Oh my God. Yeah. Bill Maher is yeah. angry yeah. and insensitive. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's sort of a shock jock. I mean, some, yeah. some of the stuff he says is smart. But oh, yeah. 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 But well, just for the record, all three of the books that, that are listed today, they all have boobs drawn in them. So if we need to like contextualize them as like adult literature or anything and not. <laughs> I don't know that Superman. that helps. <laughs> I mean, they're just not kitty fair. It's the only point I'm trying to make. I mean, just, these aren't books that you should give to kids. If anybody's wondering if this is something you should hand to your eight-year-old. I mean, like, you yeah. should see right. some of the stuff that my 11-year-old cousin watches on YouTube. I don't think so, that I helps, mean, man. like, at this point, <laughs> I just, there's no filter in anything anymore. At first, I thought he said there were foods drawn. <laughs> The they are very said, graphic depictions of food. Yeah, I was like, that sounds delicious. And then I, <laughs> then I realized that he said boobs. And that might also be delicious, oh, but no. in a different way, I the guess. spaghetti is not safe for work. Okay. <laughs> All right, Comic-Con. Yeah, talk about Comic-Con. Comic-Con. Yeah. So the San Diego, we had the Milwaukee Comic-Con, I don't know. Four weeks ago, something like that. I don't even know if it was that long. It was recently. Yeah, recently. Um, We didn't have the heavy hitters here that, of course, that show up at the San Diego Comic Con. Um, But I looked at a couple of the, I don't know, Publishers Weekly had some news about it. And there was some stuff that we were, I don't know, Sam was sort of excited about some of these titles um, that they announced. Uh, um, which, Which ones were appealing to you? Honestly, all of them. Yeah. Just the just the idea that they're going to have this studio that wants to develop stories specifically to adapt them into television and movies. Mm-hmm. They're trying to hit both areas. Mm-hmm. You know, they're trying to hit the book crowd and they're also trying to hit the moviegoer crowd. And I think yeah. it's awesome. I think all three of the titles, which would be retrograde, Brexitus, and Cortex, were the ones mentioned in this article. Um, after reading a little bit about them, I thought they all sounded super interesting, um, and they're definitely going to be things that I follow yeah. after this because yeah. I want I want to keep up on it. This sounds awesome. Yeah, Danny, do you know any of these names of these folks that are associated? Uh, yeah, uh, no, oh. which is actually even more kind of exciting because uh, the, the field is just so diverse now. You can be like this hotly anticipated book for the last. 10 years is being made into a movie and yeah. everybody's excited and you can be like I've never heard of that Yeah, because the field is just so wide Yeah, yeah. I think it's neat to have uh, the dual purpose of both having additional graphic novels and having a studio that is dedicated to graphic novel um, film adaptation because a lot of the times I think the movies that come out of graphic novels, the movies and TV shows are really hit or miss. Yeah. And so to have a group of people dedicated to relaying that in a way that takes the content, I don't want to say seriously, because I don't, I think that that's not the right word, but to have someone trying to faithfully adapt the original message is super important. Yeah. And, Ma- and Marvel paved the way, right? I mean, um, DC certainly didn't carve out the, this niche. They're not doing so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not quite the same with DC, where they were just always owned by, I shouldn't say always, but Warner Brothers. Yeah. And it's, well, we have this property, how can we capitalize on the property? As yeah. opposed to Marvel, which is 
a very different approach. Yeah. Even though they're owned by Disney, so maybe it's semantics. They didn't start owned by Disney, though. Yeah. True, but I mean, DC didn't start by Warner Brothers. Uh, right. Being owned by Warner Brothers, but it is like you get a much longer longevity under that. Like definitely. I don't even know when DC went under Warner Brothers, but it was a very very long time ago at this point. I wonder. You you said it. You said uh, Disney like um, like you had eaten some something rotten. <laughs> Did I? <laughs> yeah. I didn't mean it that way. If there was a if there was a twinge of rottenness in there, it it was less about Marvel, which I haven't had any concerns with either from the the book end of it or the film end of it. It's it's because of Fox. Yeah. Mm. Uh, all, all of my nerd uh, nerd friends are like. Man, Wolverine's going to be able to fight the Hulk. This is so exciting! I got the fantastic. From like, hold up. From from a market standpoint, Disney owns thirty more percent of the entertainment industry. Yeah, and that's like, yeah. I, I'm not a fan of the homogenization of of you know ideas and and creativity. And, and it's that. a monopoly. It's, yeah, that's why I'm there. like really excited about this yeah especially yeah. because there's yeah. this potential for it to not be live action yeah and as much as i love live action and i think that especially marvel has done a really good job with their casting um this could be really cool because there are things um i don't know i'm one of those people that i kind of even though i'm an adult like i really like cartoons yeah <laughs> like a lot yeah <laughs> that's not bad um I mean, I think I've mentioned on this show before some of the great um, cartoons that like yeah. Netflix has been doing. Like She-Ra. Yeah, She-Ra. Oh, my gosh. She-Ra is amazing. Um, the Dragon Prince yeah. is awesome. Stuff like that. And so I have that in mind when I read an article like this yeah. one because it's about graphic novels. So why wouldn't, if they're trying to do it justice, I'm sure mm-hmm. there will be some live action involved. Yeah. But... I mean, I could see a lot of potential for cartoons, and yeah. that would be awesome, especially if, like, maybe they sell some to Netflix or something. Yeah. That would be so cool. Well, and, I, and I'll say that um, part of the fear, and I think part of what I'm hearing here is the same thing. I, I don't know. I can remember when Gary Gygax started Dungeons & Dragons, and it was owned by TSR for the longest time, right? And then uh, Wizards of the Coast got bought it, along with Magic and, you know whatever else they own, and the delivery system. It's like they have this formula in the same way that Disney has a formula that they can deliver the content more effectively, get to more people, but I guess also that means less of the old, I don't know, the, the warm fuzzy that you get associated with the original stuff. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm in a lot of D&D groups on Facebook, <laughs> and so many people complain about 5e it's ridiculous 4e was horrible yeah i i know i agree (laughs) but i don't know there's been like a lot of people lately that don't like 5e and i'm i think it's just the principle i'm i feel like i'm i'm in this climate of all these people that want to be nostalgic and don't want to just appreciate something for what it is now yeah well we should we should have a show on D D because we should yeah i mean it's it's far more conducive to stream. It's more streamlined. It's far more conducive to storytelling, less rule oriented, and you don't have to spend fourteen hours combating four orcs. Yep. You yeah. know, that was just total geek speak. But you know, um, <laughs> let's talk about Dan's Gestures books. That podcast. <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's talk about Dan's picks. Cyberpunk from the eighties when yeah. we were wearing flight. Pa- well, some of us 
one, <laughs> one of us was wearing flight pants and a single glove and puppy shirts. <laughs> you really, not, you not, really rock the single us. glove because that's iconic. Yeah, yeah. Um, so well, tell us, tell us about your picks, Daniel. Well, interestingly, most of these, the two primary books, the Incal, particularly Halo Jones, they were written over the course of the '80s, and steampunk kind of, or sorry, cyberpunk kind of took hold more in the mid '80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're more the expert on that, Dean. If you want to correct me, '84 but, was Neuromancer. So yeah, and that's kind oh, of that's the. Oh, that's right. That's when I sort of kicked it all yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. So these started being published in the early '80s and early to mid '80s, and, and accumulated in uh, the late '80s. So it's kind of interesting to see it go from almost proto mm-hmm. cyberpunk to like I recognize this as cyberpunk. Mm-hmm. You're, you're just sitting reading a book, but it was published over the course of many years, as many comics are. Mm-hmm. So the Intel is um, probably the most famous comic that you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, French comic written in the 1980s. That usually, if you have a list of top you know, 50 graphic novels of all time. The Incal will be on it. A lot of the industry's biggest names will say it's a huge influence on them. And it's it's a work that very much exists within the time that it was written, mm-hmm. which is a bit ironic because it, it takes place in the far future. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sort of like if you took the all these science fiction ideas that were produced and uh, mainstream produced in the previous... 50 years, and just shoved them into a blender. Mm-hmm. Like, you have the president, uh, there's a holiday where the president gets a new clone body every few years. <laughs> and you're like, all right, well, he's got this nice seven-foot-tall buff body. And it's like, okay, well, what's the socio-cultural implications of having this holiday around? It, it doesn't matter. That was four panels for moving on now. Yeah. Moving on to the yeah. next idea. And it is this nonstop, rapid-fire succession of all the the sort of new but classic science fiction ideas where we're going to this water planet, there's no land, except now there's a giant jellyfish that comes out of the sky and there, or comes out of the water and says, hey, come down to this city beneath the planet. And it's, well, all right, that's super cool. All right, well, that was those four panels, so now we're going to move on. It's over and over and over again. Police force is made up entirely of robots. Uh, Are we going to stop and like meditate on that? No, we're not. We're <laughs> just going to. This is cool. Now we're going to move on. And it's just three hundred pages of that. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a uh, delicious science fiction smoothie in graphic novel form. Yes, and you know the the strength in that is also its weakness. Yeah, uh, I'm yeah. pulling away from the pack here a little bit in that. The artwork is, I think, the main thrust of this. Uh-huh. Is, um, I should say who it's by. It's um, it's Jordowski, uh I always mispronounce this guy's uh, name. Uh, uh, Joe Dorowski yep. and Mobius, which I think mainstream nerds are, are most famous of uh, Dorowski's work that he wrote that, or he shouldn't, I shouldn't say wrote, he tried to spearhead a Dune movie in the 90s oh, no. that never got made. Yeah. Um, I wish somebody would make that right, by the way. Dune? You know? Yeah. Somebody's working on it. I know. They're working on it again. They've, we had a miniseries. <laughs> we had the David Lynch original with Sting. 
Yes. Oh my and gosh. those big, huge worms that you could tell they ran out of their budget kind of thing? Yeah. Well, yeah, and uh, the guy who did Arrival, which uh, you and I saw together, was yeah. a fantastic movie. Yeah. He's doing it. And I was like, well, the Arrival, I would have guessed, couldn't be adapted, but he did a phenomenal yeah, job. Yeah, that was a really movie. great movie. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite short stories ever, uh, The Arrival. Um, Stories of so, Your Life is the short story. Stories right? of Your Life yeah. is the name of the short story. The Bible is the movie. Both yeah. are excellent. Yeah. That's interesting. I heard a lot of backlash regarding the movie. I'd like to check the short story out. There are some really? changes that I think weren't quite warranted, but, yeah, overall I think the movie was pretty good. Sorry, what were you going to say, Daniel? No, that's okay. Um, I think the, the movies were uh, made, to, like you said, it was just some changes. Most of them were necessary, and I would argue they were minor, but whatever. Yeah. So the, the strength of, of the book, the Intel, and I found out later that there's at least three other books that continue the story in, in the universe of the Intel. I would say that the, the main appeal here is the artwork, which has been updated for the um, 2014 release. Mm-hmm. The releases before that maintained the original artwork, mm-hmm. but with modern coloring and printing techniques. Uh, I'm I'm an advocate for, you know, it's okay to go back and, and recolor stuff. Uh-huh. I know some people are like purists uh, where you have a black and white film and they're like, don't color it. Yeah. Which ironically, I'm like, no, you don't need to go back and color those films. You just watch them as they were filmed. But yeah. with comics, you have this unique sort of position where, you know, you look back on the old printing technology and it was just inferior to what we can do today. So... I usually enjoy it when they can recolor stuff. There's no nostalgia for you involved with the old bleeding, you know? Not not really, yeah. unless I've actually read the book as a child. Yeah. And that's going to be fairly limited, the number of books I read as a kid that I'm interested in reading. So, like, so like if they recolored Scruffy the dog, you'd have a problem with that probably. Something. No, I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I think something with some when you were things, five. Like, I'm not going to go back and reread Scruffy the Dog, right? <laughs> like, I, I read a lot of Batman comics in, in my young teen years, but those aren't those aren't the type of books I'm yeah. going to go back and revisit. Yeah, you know what I mean. So yeah. if they wanted to get like, let's recolor the Nightfall saga that uh, Bane was a central figure in, like, I'm I'm not I'm not going to bother to pick it up personally. Yeah. It's but I never like read a book like The Intel or Halo Jones when I was younger, so we should say. This is new, yeah. Well, it's not like they're just changing the color, right? Like, they're like, oh, this was red here, but we're going to make it purple now. They're just, like, brightening it up. Yeah. Well, it sort of varies. Um, Alan Moore's and uh, Dave Bolin, uh, Brian Bolin, sorry, um, their most famous Batman story is The Killing Joke, which is a uh-huh. sort of main, a lot right. of people mainstream know that one. When it found out that they were reissuing it as a prestige hardcover, Brian Bullen said, will you please let me redo the coloring? <laughs> because today's technology is just hands down better. Like, yeah. nobody had planned to do the recoloring, but he wanted to. So the original artist came in and said, this is how I want it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, not to get ahead of the finish line here, but in Halo Jones, it was published in black and white. I read it in black and white. Mm-hmm. Oh. But there was a copy. Uh, they re-released it a couple of years ago, colored. Hmm. But it was colored by somebody else. She's just sort of hired on. Yeah. So she talked about how it was very intimidating going, 
I have to color in this panel, but it's so beautiful, it's black and white, and yeah. I have to mm. figure out well, what color are the uniforms where there wasn't intended to be color there before. Yeah, and this is uh, The Ballad of Halo Jones by Alan Moore, who most people will know, and then mm-hmm. Ian Gibson, right? Yep. Yeah. Even Ian this is Gibson. Daniel's second pick. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So, didn't really know much about this one going into it. It's not one of Moore's more famous works, so I'm a little surprised how that it, that it managed to get a recolor and, and reissue, especially after Alan Moore's retired. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it more than the other works, it made me sort of um, realize, you know, how relevant cyberpunk still is today. Yeah. And perhaps uh, we're seeing a little bit of a resurgency of it with, like, the Ghost in the Shell live-action movie, uh, Cyberpunk 2077 coming out yeah. in, mm-hmm. next year. Which um, I will be playing, by the way. <laughs> and... Yeah. And... Um, we interviewed uh, Richard K. Morgan, who uh, wrote Altered Carbon, which is uh, sort of post-cyberpunk, um, and that has just been not greenlighted. I think the second season on Netflix is done, oh. uh, where um, uh, Kovach is played by the guy who plays the Falcon, actually. Um, and then uh, that's come out in graphic novel uh, form as well, I think just released this summer. So oh, nice. yeah, there's there's and what was the is it Akira the with no relation to the original anime the uh, weird um, well, CG uh, fighting kind of chick with big oh, eyes. Uh, oh, that's Alita. 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 Battle Angel. Yeah. Yeah. Carl's yeah. somewhere shaking his head right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm old. <laughs> Poor Carl. Sorry, Carl. <laughs> he loves that book. He does. But you know, you 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 start with. Halo Jones, and she's she's living in the slums, and she's uh, there's no job opportunities. They say they're going to go grocery shopping, and it's treated like a bank heist, mm-hmm. right? And this is just this, you know to frame the the setup of it, and you know it's just that there's so few resources for the people living on the bottom, mm-hmm. and without wading into you know the specifics too much, she does sort of the Luke Skywalker thing, you know, the space opera thing where she leaves home to go off on all these adventures and then she, you know, she'll have a neat famous person moment. It's like, oh, that was, that was just kind of a person, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not this wild, fantastical sort of adventures out in space. It's almost like checking boxes and, and there's the warfare which uh, the warfare in this book actually reminded me quite a bit of Joe Haldeman's The Forever War. Mm, great book, uh, by the way, yeah. Great, great book. It's probably my favorite novel on warfare. Yeah. And there's uh, certain elements, particularly with the time dilation effect, that Halo Jones revisited. Mm-hmm. Revisits. Ah, okay, yeah. So just as far as like the, the economics and the perpetual warfare and, and these things, it really struck a chord with me as yeah. far as why people, the punk movement has gone through many um, different iterations. You have the steampunk and, and the biopunk, and yeah. probably missing one in there somewhere. There's all kinds of weird... Yeah, we, we interviewed Ken Liu, and he's writing silk punk. What is silk, silk punk? You told me about that. Yeah, it's uh, sort of rewriting of the Han Dynasty's history in fantasy form. Neat. 
but Thank most you. of the characters operate sort of like the punk, punkish characters from, or, you know, steampunk, which uh, William Gibson also, you know, was instrumental in sort of kicking off in the Difference Engine with Bruce Sterling, uh, which I forced, I think I forced you to read. Yeah. Um, while you're talking, it sort of made me think of, you were saying that these are very much in the context of uh, the 80s, you know, the decade yeah. that produced them. And, you know, there were two there were two sort of visions, I think, competing visions of the 80s. You had this sort of Star Trek, the next generation, where everything was very happy and there were lots of hugs and um, people were uh, very understanding of others' feelings and it was clean space, mean, meaning it was carpeted and, you know, there were no bugs and whatever. Everything solved with diplomacy, yeah. everything political, everything. Earth is a... There's no starvation. Right. There's no problems. We have to literally fly out into space yeah. to find the problem. Yeah. I feel like Star Trek was more, <clears throat> excuse me, um, like it was more suited for now. Yeah. Like now's cultural climate. Like they were yeah. ahead of their time. Yeah. In my in my opinion. Well, and well, and that whole franchise has had a sort of conversation with itself because then Deep Space Nine after the next generation was sort of a internal response to all the lovey kind of feel yeah. good feeling stuff that you got from the next generation and there was all this plotting and you know stuff like that that was going on on the space well, station and then right this Star Trek Discovery which yeah. I haven't watched but I've gotten some of the peripheral news on it caught a lot of flack for sort of sidelining the optimism that was always at the center of Star Trek and trying to inject more of a realism yeah. and a topicalness to yeah. it. And uh, to going off what was just said a moment ago, with the Star Trek Picard series is coming up. Mm -hmm. And listening to yeah. Patrick Stewart talk about why he decided to revisit this role after so long, part of it was this idea that, you know, the show was speaking to a particular moment in time at that time, and Picard's mentality as a character is perhaps very relevant today. It now, is. He didn't say specifically what he was talking about, yeah. like is it politics or economics or warfare, whatever it is, but yeah, I think it absolutely is, is a response to itself and a response to the time. Yeah. Well, and the, in the 80s, it sounds more like Halo... Jones is the other side, the the real kind of gritty punk side where a shopping trip might be a heist and everything's dirty and um you know during the uh during the 80s in England, you know, associated with the punk movement was the the trash removal folks um basically not working and piles of trash being all over London and stuff like that. So you know, the sort of Neuromancer-esque aspect yeah. or side of that discussion seems more like what Halo Jones is. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There's a, she, she was born and raised in this, uh, they call it the Halo, which is, or no, they call it the Hoop. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just this big giant circle out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean where once you lose a job, once you're unemployed for a certain length of time, they just sort of pick you up and put you here and say, well, you're here until you find employment, but of course there's no employment yeah. hmm. in this sort of, uh, I don't want to use the word concentration camp because that has certain connotations yeah, right. to it, but you look at it and you go, wait a minute, is that what this is? Yeah, right. And 
you know, of course, a new generation is eventually born in there, and you're just born into poverty, and it's just impossible to get out through legitimate means. Yeah, where the other side of it is, if you're thinking of the 80s, you know, the the whole greed is good thing. Gordon Gecko, how many, you know, yachts can you water ski behind, Mm -hmm. you know? the ultra-rich, the new sort of gilded age that we talked about at that particular time in terms of the multinational corporations. And, yeah, it seems a lot like now, right? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe that's why we're returning to it because, you know, I've watched for so many years some of my top students get out of college with great GPAs and be only offered kind of part-time work and... Finger guns. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Living the dream. Everybody's got a job. In fact, there are so many jobs that everyone has three jobs uh-huh. with no benefits kind of thing. Right. But, yeah, the, the interesting thing as far as, like, the have and the have-nots that Cyberpunk was uh, always put at sort of the forefront is in Halo Jones, it's, there's this interesting approach where it's not something that is actively railed against so mm-hmm. much as that it's sort of implied with a mute futility. Yeah. Because you only ever see the have not. Yeah. But they, they talk about things like, you know, uh, money doesn't disappear, it just changes hands. So mm-hmm. you kind of have to go, well, wait a minute, if nobody here has money, then there's other people out there in some someplace place that has got stuff that I don't got. Yeah. Uh, but it's not like railing against that force. It's just kind of, well, this is life and this is it. Which what which is what makes it compelling as a story. I mean, maybe depressing, but in some ways compelling. You know, there's no real moral lesson uh, there. Yeah. It's just sort of a picture of life. Well, it's like when you know you're you're watching a war movie and the two buddies make their way all through ninety nine percent of it, watching all their buddies die, and then just at the end, like his best buddy dies or something, yeah. and you're like, well, what the H was the point of that. And yeah. it's like, there was no point. Like, you're meant to just feel sad and depressed. Yeah. Aww. And, which isn't, I'm, I'm, I'm projecting a little bit too much on Halo Jones. I wouldn't exactly say that that's the point of the story, but it definitely, it definitely wades in there for quite a bit. Yeah. She, this character gets beaten up quite a bit. I yeah. don't mind saying. Um, let's just say a word or two about Ghost in the Shell, the last one. So that's, that's the, the only one of these is, that I even know. <laughs> say that again? I, this is, that's the only one of these that I've even heard of or know about. Hey, that, that's, don't feel bad. The Intel I had never heard of after waiting through comics for, God, most of my life. Yeah. And I was at a comic shop, and I just saw a hardcover, and I'm a sucker for hardcover comics. So <laughs> I have no self-control when it comes to hardcover comics. Uh, I Googled it, and it was like, oh, this feels like something I should have known about, so I guess I'm going to buy this and read it. Um, but Ghost in the Shell is definitely more of a mainstream. Right. Um, honestly, it's almost just more of a franchise now. Yeah. Uh, there's been uh, a couple of the comics, there's been TV show cartoons, there's been a couple movies, the live-action movie as well as the, the anime movie. Next year they're coming out with, I didn't know this until I did research for the uh conversation here but they're doing another series which i'm actually really excited about but i for my money i think ghost in the shell is is a very uh seminal comic Mm -hmm. in the whole cyberpunk movement Mm -hmm. especially in how it related to the initial film adaptation uh and i believe it was 1994 Mm -hmm. The, the thing between those properties that i find most interesting is the main character 
Mochiko Kusanagi, the major. The major. She's, her personality is so diverse. Yeah. Between the different um, properties. Yeah. Uh, that it's almost unrecognizable um, if you jump between them. Not quite like Superman or Batman, where you're like, I'm going to go mm. watch this movie, and yeah. it might be a little different, but it's it's Batman. Yeah. This is she's. Uh, in the book, she has this very, very fiery personality. In the uh, TV show, she's extremely stoic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but this sort of hyper-pragmatic um, approach to any given situation, whereas in the film, she's extremely existential. Yeah. So she's sitting here with, like, what does it mean that I can't get drunk on a boat? Uh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It means you can't get drunk on a boat. Yeah. Do you think that the series itself, like the original series, allows for that type of, I don't, I don't know how to say it, I guess, creative um, liberties, like taking liberties like that, like changing the character in that way. Do you think that the initial series allows for that in the first place? Uh, I think so. Part of that is because the author, um, Matsumune Shiru, I might be butchering his name, but I think that's how it's pronounced, has been uh, very open with the idea of um, you know, in, in the book, I, I just kind of wanted to draw something expressive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I made her an expressive person. But when they decided to do a film, like, it, it doesn't work. because yeah. they're talk- the, In the comic, they're talking about so many different things. Like, there is a bit of the existentialism. What, what does it mean to have your, your body replaced with, you know, mechanical parts? Yeah. And... But then there's also the geopolitical stuff, and it gets very, uh, very, very dense. But the movie was just like, we just kind of want to focus on this cyber consciousness existential thing, mm-hmm. and we need her to be able to respond a particular way as a character, so mm-hmm. we need to mute her. So, so that might be more of a extra textual answer, yeah. but yeah, yeah. when they did the live-action movie, uh, he said, well, we want to cast Scarlett Johansson, who is... Mm-hmm. Uh, not Japanese. Mm-hmm. Like that's cool. She's gorgeous. She and she's she'll play the part really well. Yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm aces on that. Yeah. So it's you know just I know that that caught a lot of flack as far as like whitewashing and stuff. And it was like he just seems to be super cool and super open with this because he just kind of wrote it off as like a riff almost. Yeah. That is so interesting. Because he just likes drawn yeah. women and he likes drawn soldiers and he likes drawn robots and then he just was like. <laughs> Let's all right, combine let's, all let's, of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to create a work that has all that stuff in there. Oh but uh, the film, I think, really injected um, the, the intellectualism into the property, I think. For my money, my, my love will always be more the TV show. Yeah. Because every episode, you had this serialized approach where in this one you're dealing with this idea and this one you're dealing with this idea. And it's great, great show. Um, brilliantly written. I, I, you know, while while all of us are talking and sort of asking questions, I keep thinking about how the sort of staying power that the franchise has in terms of the cultural conversation that it evokes. You know, so mm-hmm. if you think about it, during the '80s, the westernized version of the cyborg is Terminator, right? Yeah. It's this, it's this mindless killing machine. That we should all fear, that will be back, you know. Um, you cannot kill it. It will keep coming. It will destroy you. 
And that's sort of the way the West has looked at um, or, or had looked at uh, the way technology interfaces with uh, meat space, so to speak. For sure. Right? And then the, the East comes with Ghost in the Shell and sexualizes it in a way that it is, in fact, sexy, that the cyborg is beautiful in many ways. The uh, modification of the human body doesn't have to be atrocious or evil or a mindless kind of killer, right? Right, and they're, they're even much more cutesy. Like, yeah, yeah. There's these spider tanks. Yeah. I promise they're not as scary looking as they think they are. And they got these, like, sort of quasi-AI, so they're, they're even, uh, you know, they have these big, giant guns on them. But you look at them, they're worth Googling, Ghost in the Shell spider tank. And they're like these adorable seven-feet-tall spider tanks on droids with these, like, quirky personalities. It's like, hey, what's it mean to have a soul? Can we have a conversation about that? Like, <laughs> and they're just like this, this, in, uh, they're this comic relief without the heavy-handed yeah. Jar Jar Binks sort of comic relief. Yeah. While dealing with all of this existentialism and, and yeah. paramilitary force that operates in the heart of downtown Tokyo, Right, so it's actually like like you said, this is a very very different approach to robotics. Yeah. Between this is something we need to be paranoid about versus ah, yeah. fire tank is adorable. Right. I wonder if some of that pulls into um, Japan's animism. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would say yes. And plus, like if you're pitching it to someone and you just say adorable tanks, they probably would be like, okay, <laughs> I want to read that now. Right. Right. Um, and then, I mean, if we continue forward. It's still, like today, we're still, not today, when the live action version came out with Scarlett Johansson, it's still part of the discussion, um, the sort of meta-cultural discussion that we're having about appropriating, you know, now it's not about the influence of the Far East on the United States. In the 80s, everyone was running around with bandanas tied to their knees and rising sun shirts and stuff like that, right? Ninjas were really popular. Now it's about the cultural appropriation of those texts um, and the way we represent those texts right. in the West. So we so we have this big thing about whitewashing and, it, you know, whether or not Scarlett Johansson is sexy um, is less a point in that discussion than she's white. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. But to be fair, it's like, well, is she being sexy? Is that now it's about uh, objective, objectification yeah. and well, how important yeah. is it that the major be sexy? Yeah. And I, I think having read or watched almost everything goes in the shell at this point, I, I might have a, a much more um, complicated viewpoint on it. Because, yeah. um, so, all right, so, so the major's white in the movie, and it's Scarlett Johansson, and of course she's, she's a gorgeous woman, and, and it's a gorgeous character, and how relevant is that? And there's, there's a lot of nuances within Ghost in the Shell about all of those things. Yeah. In the comic, it's a throwaway line in one panel. It's never brought up again in, in any sort of capacity. It says, the major's body is an off-the-rack European model. Mm-hmm. She's a Japanese woman, or girl, depending on how you're really reading it, who is cyberized, and then she kind of just goes, all right, that Eastern one is fine, right? Yeah. You mm-hmm. never see that scene. You never get into the waves as yeah. to why she made that choice. It's just somebody else says the major's body is an off-the-brack European model. So it's, you know, according to the source material, the major is a Japanese brain in a white body. Yeah. Do I think that they were doing that in the movies for fidelity? Absolutely yeah. not. I think they wanted a white actress. Yeah. 
a a level profile yeah. that could do that. But then, if, how are we getting upset about this when the creator's cool with it? Yeah, and it's following the original source material. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah, there was there was a little bit of an uh, sort of an outcry at the start of the uh, Netflix version of Altered Carbon about this too, because you had a white guy playing mm-hmm. Takeshi Kovach, who's uh, Asian, and uh, people were saying, "Oh my God, it's another example of whitewashing." But the whole purpose of, or the whole core of the plot of these books, is that people get re-sleeved into new bodies, hmm. and That's so yeah, and so people got got quiet relatively quickly. They did have the original, um, you know, they did flashbacks to the to his original sort of body, um, but the main character in this case was white, um, and then now in the season two of this, he's going to be black, not Asian. So yeah, there's some sort of credence to that. I think it speaks to the way in which today we are very very apt to um, get on our Twitter accounts and our Facebook oh, soapboxes God, yes. without actually looking at what's going on definitely but i think it's also interesting how uh there is sometimes a dissonance between the creators of a piece and the fans yeah i remember remember terry brooks was like i love what mtv is doing with yeah you know the shannara chronicles yeah and we were like whatever it's yeah and we were like really (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think that the whole whitewashing conversation is something that I think we need to have a conversation almost piece by piece, book by book, show by show. Yeah. But it's something that we have, most people, especially the loudest voices in the room, have just come to a position on this, either stop whitewashing yeah. or, hey, you know what, who cares what the race is, I don't care, or, hey, it's got to be the source material. You have your opinion, and then the second something comes up, you now have your opinion as opposed to engaging the text. Yeah. Cowboy Bebop. Yeah. Spike Spiegel is the main character. Mm-hmm. German. Yeah. Right? Jet Black, the implication, it's never stated, but the implication I got was that he was um, American Indian. Yeah. In the show, now Spike Spiegel is Japanese, and he yeah. and Jet Black is a black guy. Yeah. I'm cool with the casting simply because it wasn't relevant in the original show. Like, it, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. No, on the other hand, if you've written something where ethnicity is is at the center of the conversation, then it matters. Now you need to have a a conversation about well, what is changing that mean to the story? Yeah. Okay, but (laughs) Little Mermaid. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Like Scarlett Johansson cannot play the dog, though she does not have the range. (laughs) Not the dog. Mm -mm. All right. Well, we have the this episode. We have three. We talked about three really great. If you want to go back to the 80s, which probably isn't a good idea in many <laughs> respects, but if you want to ha- take a little trip back to the Reagan era, um, you can do it through comics with the Incal. Um, I think it's Incal, but Incal. I haven't heard anybody say it. So yeah. that's a French comic. If, if you want to go back to the 80s but avoid the Reaganomics, yeah. the French comic from the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, and then the Ballad of Halo Jones, Alan Moore, the British comic. Yep, and Ghost in the Shell, which Sam has heard of, <laughs> and, <laughs> and may, she may want to check out um, the other two. Spider tanks. Yeah, it ha- yeah it has spider a- tanks. Adorable guys. tanks. <laughs> um, okay, 
that's all the time we have for today. Uh, the pub is produced at the University of Wisconsin Parkside from the studios at WIPZ 105 FM. You can tune in Saturdays at noon to catch new episodes, and you can also find us on Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Or you can head over to our website at straylightmag.com for fiction, poetry, art, and, of course, podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for regular updates on new content. And until next time, thanks for listening to The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast of all things books and publishing.